Welcome to Beyond the Boardroom with me, Kieran Paul. Today, we meet Sanford Lewis, director of the Shareholder Rights Group. He will tell us all about its aims and how it works. So welcome to the show, Sanford. Thanks for having me. So just to get to know you, I have some quick fire questions, okay? So, Sir Sanford, cats or dogs? Oh, I, I can't really pick. That's like asking for a favorite child. We we have both. Technically, the dog is mine, the cat's my wife's, but um, I love them both. Does the cat and dog get on? They do, for the most part. We were worried at the beginning, but now, you know, the cat basically controls the dog with a wave of a paw. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, bagels or muffins? Gluten-free morning glory muffins. What book are you reading right now? My Life as an Experiment by A.J. Jacobs. And do you prefer fiction or non-fiction? Uh, generally non-fiction. And what is the last film you watch? This can be in the cinema or at home. Well, um, I haven't had a chance to watch many films lately. Uh, I'm enjoying uh, a lot of the serialized TV dramas. Uh, right now we're watching The Essex Serpent. What's that about? How would I describe it? Kind of historical fiction about a, a, a serpent in a Essex, England. Um, tones, overtones of witchcraft, etc. It's a good one if you haven't seen it. It's on uh, Apple Plus. Okay, and finally, your favorite sitcom of all time. You know, Brooklyn Nine Nine is something that I always uh, find is good for some laughs when I just want to have some good out loud laughing. <laughs> okay, right. So now on to the sort of more serious stuff. Um, so you are a lawyer representing shareholder advocates, including investment firms and individuals. And of course, you also lead an organization of those investors, the Shareholder Rights Group. So just how do these all fit together? You know, one of the main things I do is help uh, shareholders to draft and defend shareholder proposals. You know, you actually had a couple of my clients on recently, uh, uh, As You So is one of my clients and also Jim McRitchie. You know, a lot of my clients file shareholder proposals and the Shareholder Rights Group it's basically a group of proponents of shareholder proposals that have come together and are defending their rights to file those proposals. And what brings the members together? Uh, the members originally came together in the sense of a threat of a rollback of the right to file proposals back in 2016. You know, they they stick together because there's a continual need to shape public policy around shareholder proposals. And and a big part of your work in both capacities is the shareholder proposal process. So is, is it true that the process is becoming more important in this era of ESG? And are shareholders supporting your proposals? And then what kind of proposals have you worked on so far this year? Oh, my. Uh, well, that is a, a, a handful. Uh, let's see. Well, first of all, Yes, I think shareholder proposals are becoming more important in this era of uh, ESG. Uh, I think that shareholder proposals have always been, but especially now, are critical to pushing the envelope when 
it's important to encourage some companies to lead and to encourage the laggards to wake up and better manage long-term ESG risks. So it's a very lively field right now. There's increasing attention. There's efforts by shareholders to file some more proposals and also higher voting outcomes happening. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of progress in this in this field. Um, I, I don't even know where to begin in terms of, you know, I would say that, you know, there are a number of instances lately where in general, uh, these proposals are filed where the company shareholders try to engage in dialogue with companies over issues and the dialogues are not successful. And then uh, the proposal represents a way to take their case to other shareholders. This year and last year, there's been an interesting breakthrough that not only have there been more majority votes, but in some instances, companies are supporting shareholder proposals, which then results in a very high level of support. So a couple of examples of those uh, this year at Boeing, a proposal on net zero alignment and at Chevron, a proposal on methane, uh, both of them got over 90% uh, shareholder support. Um, So, uh, you know, I think it's kind of interesting, these companies choosing to support the proposal rather than opposing it. Historically, if a company supports a proposal, that would lead to a withdrawal of the shareholder proposal and company and the shareholders would agree. But in these instances, the companies are choosing to let the proposal go to a vote and signify their support and getting sort of the shareholder embrace of those proposals. I, I think that's a, you know an interesting development that we're starting to see. But there are plenty of proposals that still meet stiff opposition. You know, a lot of these proposals that are getting very high votes are asking the company to set a long-term vision and commitment, you know, like net zero by 2050. In contrast, proposals that are pushing companies further toward near-term action are still facing some headwinds. So, you know, I was involved this season in multiple proposals at banks and insurers, asking them to curtail financing of new fossil fuel development. And those proposals received in the 10 to 11% range, which is still a you know, significant showing, but it's, you know, it's not by any means a, a majority vote. There've been about 28 majority votes this season, which on ESG proposals, which is outstanding and an impressive sense that the market is moving in this direction towards greater accountability on ESG for portfolio companies. And one of the emerging trends this proxy season has been the sudden growth of the racial equity audit. Are your members generally supportive of these proposals? And how do you think these proposals might evolve in the future? Okay, well, uh, I was involved in representing the uh, New York State Common Retirement Fund at Amazon last year, which was one of the first uh, racial equity audit proposals. Um, It got... uh, 44% support last year. And this year they refiled the proposal, but it was actually withdrawn because the company basically committed to doing a racial equity audit. Um, There have been six majority votes this season on racial equity proposals, I believe. And uh, so really uh, this is certainly a trend. Um, It grew out of the you know, broad George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, set of concerns about companies. Um, And there are certainly variants on the proposal in terms of where these things might go. You know, one example is 
proposals, getting the company to look at their cultural norms rather than sort of broadly looking at uh, issue of racial equity. Is the culture of the company uh, inclusive? That's that's one I think frontier for such proposals. And um, you know, another is to probe particular issues. Um, a proposal that I was particularly excited about this year um, happened at Travelers Insurance. Now, Travelers Insurance did have a racial equity audit proposal and it got 47% support, but there was another proposal on the proxy that asked the company to look at what they can do about racial equity within their own sphere of influence. So Travelers Insurance is actually uh, one of the leading commercial insurers of police departments. And the proposal was asking them to issue a report on what they could do about racist police brutality. And that proposal did not get a majority support. But I think, you know, the fact that the racial equity proposal got such support shows that there's interest of investors in seeing the company do something about the racial equity issue in general. And then this new issue that was presented about whether the company can do more to encourage police departments to avoid police brutality. I think represents an example of, you know, a frontier in this area. Are there any other proposal types you think we should be keeping an eye on? Well, one of the proposal types that I was very involved in formulating and which has been very um, successful is um, a proposal that's geared toward looking at the assumptions in a company's financial statement. So there were proposals at Exxon and Chevron last year and this year asking the companies to compare the assumptions in their financial statement against the net zero 2050 scenario. And last year, I think the proposal at Exxon got 47% support. This year, it got 51%. What I like about it is that it goes to questions that investors care about in terms of how reliable is the financial statement? How much has it been tested against decarbonization scenarios, especially an aggressive decarbonization scenario. And I I think this model of a proposal that challenges assumptions about issues like capital expenditures, useful life of assets, anticipated cash flows, et cetera, I think those can also be applied to other issues besides climate change. And so I I think that's a, a potent approach to proposals that can be expanded to other areas. And Sanford, how important is it for a shareholder proposal to get a majority vote? Well, obviously, it's valuable if a proposal gets a majority vote. But one thing that you need to look at in the current market is that in many instances, the insiders of companies, the board and management may predominate in the amount of voting power that they have, either because it's dual class company or because the board or the CEO even have a majority uh, or have a substantial uh, dominant share. So, you know, an example of a proposal that did not get a majority vote this season is a proposal at Amazon that asked the company to audit the treatment of its warehouse workers. But if you look at the independent shareholders and you set aside Jeff Bezos's shares, he holds an enormous number of shares, you'd find that actually uh, the proposal was supported by a majority of outside shareholders. And I think that's a significant flaw or, or frontier for further work in the shareholder proposal process, probably a policy change that's needed by the SEC, which is that really this process ought to reflect the unpredictable shareholders, the independent shareholders, rather than whether the board is casting votes 
against a proposal, whether the CEO is casting votes against a proposal. And we're asking everyone about this. How do you think Russia's invasion of Ukraine impacted this proxy season? I do think it impacted the proxy season. I think that it discouraged some investors to vote in favor of some of those fossil fuel proposals, the ones that the banks and insurers that were asking them to you know, make a, a firm commitment to stop financing new fossil fuel development. Um, you know, we're in multiple crises here. We're in a climate emergency and we're in an energy emergency. And so uh, it's complicated. And um, those proposals were written prior to the Ukraine war. I think they might be written differently today. And the US Securities and Exchange Commission has been very busy this year proposing new rules on climate disclosure and ESG investment. Do you have any observations on those rule proposals? Uh, Sure. Um, Why don't we start with the uh, ESG disclosure rule? That's the one that came out most recently. You know, I think that there's a clear need to regulate this, you know, what we might call the Wild West of ESG funds. Um, It's been emerging quickly. Uh, There's a lot of demand for ESG products and there's a diverse set of approaches There's clearly a need to regulate uh, ESG. There's a a diverse range of approaches in the market and enforcement cases have been brought against some big funds, BNY Mellon and DWS, where they were marketing ESG funds, but where the enforcement cases allege that they didn't really engage in uh, rigorous or, or consistent screening of the investments in those funds. Another issue is that you know, a fund can claim to be ESG and say that we're covering our ESG commitment through engagement, but there might not be transparency about how productive are those engagements. So I think a better window into engagement strategies could be helpful. But I think that the ESG rule proposed by the SEC is kind of misdirected on this engagement issue because it just asks for the number of engagement meetings that a fund is conducting. And my experience, you know, working with the investors that I work with is that having a lot of engagement meetings is not the same as a effective strategy. And so I think it's more important to disclose strategy rather than the number of meetings, kind of a bean counting uh, approach to it. And so I I think the SEC needs to refine its uh, engagement disclosure requirements. But there are other aspects of the ESG rule proposal asking for things like disclosure of ESG screening strategies and proxy voting. And and those are straightforward. Greenhouse gases, emissions calculations by funds also seems an important part of the rule that I certainly support. And a big issue in the SEC climate disclosure rule is the handling of scope three emission disclosures. So what is the controversy from your perspective? I think the controversy is The SEC has said that as a general proposition, they'll require scope one and two greenhouse gas emissions disclosure, but will only require scope three if the company decides that it's material. And the problem is that that doesn't give good guidance on scope three disclosures and will not result, in my my opinion, in consistent and comparable disclosures on scope three emissions. So this idea of materiality is something that's assessed by the courts and the court decisions are not necessarily going to be consistent and reliable on climate disclosure matters. For example, there was a lawsuit by New York State saying that ExxonMobil had 
misled investors on climate-related issues, and the court went through its analysis. You know, the courts look at what would the reasonable investor think was important to their decisions. And unfortunately, when the courts do that assessment, they don't look at what's the demand of the market for the information. Instead, they're asking a very different question. They're asking, what would an individual investor think? And, you know, the court thought, well, an individual investor would think that investment decisions would not necessarily be affected by something that may occur 20 or 30 years from now that might be speculative or uncertain. And that's not consistent with how institutional investors are looking at the market right now. They're very much asking about that long-term kind of concern, and they, they need to be. And so the SEC, its mission is to take account of what investors need for orderly and efficient markets. And I think it's clear that many asset owners and managers need consistent and comparable scope three disclosures and targets from their portfolio companies to understand the risks and to assess their alignment with global climate goals. So I think that the SEC should not be asking companies to only disclose it if the companies find that it's material. The SEC should be providing clear guidance to companies as to which companies need to disclose scope three emissions. And around about this time last year, well, in fact, this month last year, uh, you wrote to the SEC arguing that the Rule 14A8 no-action process needs to better take into consideration the need for ESG data. Are you now happy with its more ESG-friendly stance towards no-action letters? Certainly, yes. They, they made a major improvement. They issued a staff legal bulletin in November of last year that did allow more ESG proposals to be filed and to, to make it onto the proxy. We think about roughly 50% more proposals made it on the proxy this year went to a vote. You know, there's another thing that happened at the SEC, which is that uh, a couple years ago, the commission adopted rules that restrict shareholder proposals in certain aspects. And that rule has been challenged in the courts, and we're still waiting for the court decision on that. Uh, that's another you know, important aspect. So on the one hand, the current staff established some clearer and I think more appropriate guidance that allows shareholders to be the ultimate arbitrator as to whether or not the issue is important to shareholders. And then the rule changes actually make it harder for shareholders to file proposals and so I hope, and the shareholder rights group hopes that those rule changes will ultimately be overturned. And now a question that I really do enjoy asking. Uh, Sanford, what is your proudest moment so far doing this work? Well, I think actually um, seeing the SEC adopt the staff legal bulletin last year was really a very exciting moment for me because the shareholder rights group had been working hard to um, both to resist those changes to the uh, staff guidance that had been happening over the years. And, uh, you know, the SEC heard us and really uh, made some significant changes there. And, you know, we fought that, those rule changes. And, you know, it was one of the most awful things to see the rule changes uh, established um, that undercut the ability of shareholders to file proposals. And then uh, alongside that, what has been the most challenging moment? Well, I think one of the most challenging moments was when the SEC ignored our arguments against the promulgated rule changes, the changes that they made that are 
now being litigated in the courts. So that's it for today's episode. My thanks to Sanford for joining me. Remember, if you want something discussed on a future episode or a particular guest you want to see in the hot seat, and that can be you, simply email press at insitia.com. I'm Kieran Paul. I'll see you next time.